The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 27. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whenever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, next time you're up here on stage, bring that Telecaster and you can shred it up up here for us. We got amps back here you can plug into. Beloved, it is the Word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Uh, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, uh, we come now in the strong and the matchless name of Jesus. So thankful that uh, you are who you say you are. And Father, we would ask now uh, that you would give us grace, open our eyes, that uh, we would see wherein we fail. Jesus, on our behalf, mightily prevails, for you ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head, and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, this past Wednesday, Valentine's Day, I gave my wife and daughter a dozen roses each, and uh, Diane remarked uh, on how lovely uh, they were, and inquired where I had found roses so full and, and beautiful, uh, thorns all cut off. They had to have been rather costly, and uh, I assured her that I am a, cl a client at, at an exclusive, uh, very expensive uh, French florist, uh, La Publique. 
Lydia said he got him at Publix. You see, when you forget to take the price tag off, a lot is revealed. Um, the tag was visible and the cost uh, was revealed. Got a good deal on them, $15 for a dozen, if you can believe that. The passage that we're going to consider this morning reveals the cost of discipleship. I have a, a book here, rather plain, unassuming book. It's a German book, and uh, the opening line in this book, I would hazard a guess that many of you know quite well. Belegnade ist todfind unsere Kirch, unser Kampf hut get um de tiers nade. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting daily for costly grace. The author of this book, Nachfolge, uh, paid the price for the cost of discipleship on the chilly morning of April 9th, 1945, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged from a gallow in Flossenburg concentration camp, stripped and naked, his body was incinerated like some six million Jews and any who dared to stand against Hitler's demonic dictatorship. There, there's a chapter in here entitled, Den Nachfolge an das Kreuz, Discipleship and the Cross. And he says, Der Hebesen Kreuz auf, es leck schon von Anfang an erbrach es nir auf Zugbehegen. Let him take up his cross. Jesus' command, let him take up his cross, is laid upon every Christian from the very beginning. He simply needs to pick it up. He goes on to say, Jitter of Christi fert in den Tod. Modern translation of that, you may be familiar with it. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Quite literally, in the German, every call of Christ leads to death. Every call of Christ leads to death. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, multiply, in his situation, Hitler's six million by ten, and you'll understand the passion of Russian dissident and disciple of Jesus Christ, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He lived from 1918 to 2007. He won the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion back in 1983, and he gave his acceptance speech in the city of London, and he, and he said, listen, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, let that sink in, some 60 million of our people, many, most of them were swallowed up for no other reason than they were Christians. And they were a threat to the regime as followers of Christ. 
the cause of this ruinous revolution that has swallowed up some 60 million of our people. I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. What is more, the events of the Russian Revolution can only be understood now at the end of the century against the background of what has since occurred in the rest of the world. What emerges here is a process of universal significance. And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too, I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. He continues with a reference to Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist. He said, Dostoevsky warned that, quote, the great events that would come upon us and catch us intellectually unprepared. He's writing, he's saying this back in 1983. What would he say today? Dostoevsky, back in the 1800s, right? His dates are 1821 to 81. And he said back in the 1800s, the great events are going to come and they're going to catch us unprepared intellectually. Solzhenitsyn says this is precisely what has happened. And he predicted that, quote, the world will be saved only after a visitation by the demon of evil. But it has already come to pass that the demon of evil, like a whirlwind, triumphantly circles all five continents of the earth. Solzhenitsyn agrees with Dostoevsky that the French Revolution, with its, quote, seething hatred for Christianity, should teach us the lesson that, and I quote, revolution must necessarily begin with atheism. He observes that the world had never before known a godlessness as organized, militarized, and tenaciously malevolent as that practiced by Marxism. Within the philosophical of Marx and Lenin and at the heart of their psychology, hatred of God is the principal driving force, more fundamental than all their political and economic presentations. Militant atheism is not merely incidental or marginal to communist policy. It is not a side effect, but the central pivot. To achieve its diabolical ends, communism, he says, needs to control a population devoid of religious and national feeling, and this entails the destruction of faith and nationhood. He concludes by saying, our only hope, our only hope in this world is a determined quest for the warm hand of God. Now, I would actually understand if some of us are sitting here this morning and are putting two and two together, you're looking at the text before us in John's gospel. They hated me, they hated you, they hate hated me, they hate you, they, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And you're listening to me talk about the ways in which the world has sought to crush Christianity in our own lifetimes. You're thinking this is going to be a sermon about Christians enduring persecution in our cultural moment, and you're wondering to yourself, man, dang, couldn't this passage have been assigned to one of our nicer preachers? <laughs> Lee Eric or Todd, maybe y'all could come up and take over for me. It might give some people some relief. Please know I am not interested in superficial provocation, but in a scriptural perspective on the realities before us. And I'll tell you why. It was made all the more clear to me just five minutes ago when I was sitting over there on the pew and I watched a stream of precious little ones walk by. I saw children walk by, I saw children holding hands, I saw them to go off and have their Bible lesson and learn about the Lord. 
It wasn't just Peter whom Satan wanted to sift as wheat. He would sift our children as wheat. And so I want to be committed to the three following principles, um, what I have to say this morning. I want to be committed to um, biblical clarity, biblical conviction, and biblical compassion, and what I believe and, and am accountable before the Lord to say this morning. This text says a lot, and a lot could be said about this text, but for the time we have, I want to turn our hearts to two realities. One, the cost of love. Two, the cost of hatred. The cost of love and the cost of hatred. You look in chapter 15, verses 9 to 17, the world is looking for love. The world is looking for love. We have TV shows like The Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise. The Bachelor, listen to your heart. That's a favorite of lyrics, actually. along with some 40 international versions of The Bachelor. Here's another one, Love is Blind. Here's one, Sister Wives. It's a reality show, a dating show about polygamy. Love Island, Bachelor Pad, and a host of other spinoffs and knockoffs, the titles of which uh, really can't be repeated in the sanctuary this morning. But if you are looking for love this morning, look to Christ. Jesus tells his disciples, he tells us, this morning, that the love the Father has for him flows to us, and he calls us to abide. He says, abide, minnow, remain, abide in my love. Where else could you possibly desire to be this morning than in the safety of Christ's love for you, where you're held in his hand and the hand of the Father, and nothing will snatch you away, John 10, 28 and 29, where you are hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3, verse 3, where you are called, loved, and kept for Christ, Jude, verse 1, where else could you want to be? But in the love of Christ, that it was announced in the garden and the promise of the seed who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. Christ is so loving and so lovely. And he declares in Isaiah 42.22, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. I've blown them away. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Where else would you want to be but in a love that covers you, Psalm 91.4, with pinions, with outstretched feathers, or as Jesus says in Luke 13.34, I would be like a mother hen covering my chicks with her wings, a love that, that quietens you, settles down your anxious hearts and rejoices over you with loud singing, Zephaniah three seventeen, a love that says to you in the book of Hosea, beginning verse 4 of chapter 14, listen to this, listen to the love your Savior has for you. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned from them. I will be like due to Israel. You are Israel because you're the church. The church is Israel. Israel is the church. We are the Israel of God, Galatians 6, 16. And so Jesus is saying, I am going to be like morning dew, refreshing you. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the streets of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. He says of us, the church, your beauty shall be like the olive and your fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, 
what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress, and from me comes your fruit. We just heard last week that he is the vine and we are the branches. We draw our life. We draw our sustenance from him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And to a rebellious people who have given themselves over in spiritual idolatry, people like me, he says, I am going to be like dew to you. I will cover you with my shadow, such amazing love, so undeniable that the Father would send his Son, his only Son, that whosoever would believe within him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 16, a love that predestined you and me for adoption as daughters and sons as we read of in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And that's what predestination is, by the way. The Father's forever love set upon you before you were ever conceived. And in time, space, history, he catches up to you and says, you are mine and you've been mine from all eternity because I have set my affection upon you from before you were ever born. A love that is so incredible that we see it here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Oh, it's no wonder that the aged apostle John says in 1 John 3, 1 to 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, and what we shall be has not yet been revealed. But we know this, when he, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. You see that book in your lap? That word in your lap is the story of tenacious covenant love, the Spirit's pen, as it were, dipped in the ink of the blood of Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 20. That's why Martin Luther, that often ostentatious Augustinian monk, said that the gospel is a gospel of personal pronouns. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loved you and he gave himself for you. He gives himself for you even, even now. What love. Samuel Rutherford, Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian, lived from around 1600 to 61, said that I am so in love with the love of Christ. Isn't that incredible? I am so in love, he says, with the love of Christ that if his love were not in heaven, I should not be willing to go there. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you have just sat and pondered, just marinated in how lovely Jesus is and how he loves you so fully and completely and unashamedly. He is not ashamed, Hebrews 2, 10 to 18, to call you his little sister, his little brother. He loves you so unashamedly. Rutherford meditated so deeply on Jesus' heart for him that he said, and this is one of my favorite things I've ever heard in my entire life, the love of Christ hath neither brim nor bottom. Beloved, drink. Drink of this love that finishes what it starts. We read of that love finishing what it starts in John 13. We heard it just a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Todd Verse 1 of 13, now before the feast, the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, tell us agapasin altus, he loved them to the telos, he loved them to the end, he loved them to completion. And how did he show that he loved them completely? He got up. And he laid aside what he was wearing. He girded himself with a towel. And he kneels down with a basin of water. And he begins to wash the dirty, 
smelly feet of his disciples. Many of us saw the Super Bowl ad last Sunday night from the He Gets Us campaign. And while there's a beauty in that campaign, so far as it goes, the, the, the um, images of, of the love of Christ for sinners washing the feet of people from all walks of life and, and brokenness and the fallout of the fall, that the sympathetic high priest pictured there who is not untouched by the feelings of our infirmities as we read in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And yet the ad cannot stand alone. For as beautiful as it is in one sense, Jesus did not come to simply get us as if to understand where we were coming from. He came not simply to get us, He came to get us, to lay hold of us, to to deconstruct the idols in our lives and demand our full attention, our full allegiance, our full affection to get us cleansed, to get us saved from the sin and brokenness we have chosen, to get us free from the sin clinging to us, to get us free from the sin that we cling to and say, as it were, I get you, I understand you. But you need to understand that your condition sent me to the cross, and it's going to cost me everything, my very life, facing the unspeakable white-hot wrath of a holy God as I become your sin on the cross so that you may become righteous in the sight of my Father. Paul says it so beautifully, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, and in him we would become the righteousness of God, the great exchange my sin for his righteousness, who wouldn't want to get in on that? Your feet are dirty, and only my shed blood can clean them. Yes, I get you, but with your feet cleaned, come now with me. For whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Matthew 10, 38 to 39, Jesus did not come simply to say, hey, I understand, live and let live, but come and live with me. He came to love us to life, to live in and through us. He came to get us out of our grave clothes that we wear in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, to bedeck us with a robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61, 10, and now we die to ourselves that the world might see Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. When the world sees us, they will know that if they are looking for love, they can look to Christ, yes, but they can also look to the church. They can look to us. We were chosen to go and bear fruit. Jesus says this in John 15, 16. I have chosen you so that you would go and bear fruit. And we do this, church, as we preach and teach and serve the sacraments and pray and sing and carry one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6, verse 2. As we are a conduit of Christ's love to a world of tired, sore, and dirty feet. It'll be costly, CPC, it's costly to be a loving church. And y'all do it so well. Y'all do it so well. If Paul were to write a letter to Christ Presbyterian Church on this subject, that's exactly what he would say. He would say, Christ Presbyterian Church, y'all do it so well. And that would be in the MSV, the Mid-South version. Y'all do it so well. You are so loving. You are so generous. You fall all over yourselves to give yourselves to each other. You fall all over yourselves to meet needs all around us. 
When the world sees us doing that, carrying each other's burdens, laying our lives down for each other, repenting when we fail to, they're going to see Jesus. It's costly, but you do it so faithfully. Paul, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, we read that we were dead in trespasses, walking around like zombies, spiritually dead, you and I, outside of Christ. We're like dead men walking, spiritually dead. But he goes on to say that we've been saved by grace and that we are God's workmanship. The word there for workmanship is the Greek word poema. We get our word poem. We go from dead men walking to poetry in motion, good works, not that merit our justification, but that manifest we've been justified. Good works, not that earn our salvation, but evidence that we are the saved. Good works, not that deserve God's favor, but demonstrate God's favor all over us, through us, and to a watching and wondering world. It is beautiful and it is costly. And we live out this poetic beauty for all to see as we lay our lives down for one another. It will be the aroma of life to those who are being saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. We will be like a, a flower petal that is crushed under suffering, and the aroma will go out. That's Paul's imagery there. And it will smell like life. It will be life-giving. The aroma will quicken people to life through the power of the Holy Spirit, those who are being saved. But it will have the stench of death, Paul says to those who are perishing. And Paul says this in the context of his own sufferings for preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is why Jesus tells us not only the cost of love, and it is costly, it cost him everything, it will cost us everything. It tells us also of the cost of hatred. Verses 18 and following, he calls us to courage here. Jesus is about to depart, and that's heavy enough for this confused band of disciples. In fact, this whole pericope here is what is known as the farewell discourse, Jesus is about to leave, and so he's, he's saying his final words to his disciples before he dies and ascends to heaven. You think, what's he going to talk about? Well, in reality, he really gives them two things to ponder as he's about to leave. One is the reality of the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Chapters 14 through 17 are really a message from Jesus about the reality of the Trinity. So the persons of the Godhead, and number two, persecution that is going to come because we align ourselves with and give ourselves over to and follow the Trinity. This is all heavy that he's about to leave, but now he lays this on them. They will be hated. They will be persecuted. And they will be killed. John 16, verse 2. That is why all of them, except for John, would run and hide. When the day came, That Friday we call good. They could hear Jesus scream in agony as he was mercilessly beaten, as his beard was torn out of his face, as the, the flesh was dragged off of his back by the Roman flagrum. They could hear him cry out in agony, even as they could look down at their clean feet. Jesus' life of obedience, theologians call that his act of obedience, actively obeying the law is often distinguished from his passive obedience. The word passive from the Greek word pasco, meaning I suffer. So Jesus' obeying of the law and his suffering, but in verse 25 of chapter 15, even his suffering 
was in fulfillment of the law. Even as he suffered, he was actively obeying the law because the law required sin be punished. Jesus tells them, he tells you and me in verse 13, that he is laying down his life for his friends. I need to marvel at that. I need to marvel at that. Because when the Bible tells me about the deceitful, rebellious heart of David Filson, when it tells me in Romans 5, 9, and 10 that left to myself, I was at enmity with God, and Jesus says he's laying his life down for a friend? Are you kidding me? I would have clamored. I would have clamored to have taken a turn with the whip and have dragged the flesh off of Jesus' back. And I know that because it's basically what I do every time I choose my sin over my Savior. For us, he laid down his life. And that hatred the world has for him, the world has for y'all. Will we have the courage to persevere? Hebrews 12, verse 3 Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For in your struggle against sin, and the Hebrews were, Hebrew Christians are being persecuted, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Ever since our first parents asserted their own divinity in the garden and denied the authority of God in their lives in Genesis 3, paganism has spread. And ever since Cain, in chapter 4 of Genesis, with his religion of human achievement killed Abel with his religion of divine accomplishment pictured in his sacrificial animal persecution by those who hate the gospel has spread you see it all throughout the scripture first kings 19:10 elijah says i have been very jealous for the lord the god of hosts for the people of israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and i even i only am left and they want to take my life away Jesus says in Matthew 23, 34 to 35, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog and beat in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Turn to Acts chapter 5, if you would. Acts chapter 5. We have the early disciples of Christ, and they are preaching the gospel. Following Christ, the church is living lives of such compassion, meeting needs all around them. The Greco-Roman world around them is marveling at such compassion and generosity. The way that the church cares not only for its own, but for the watching and wondering world around them. And they hate them for it. And so they bring the disciples before the council. And the high priest questioned them, verse 27, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, 
whom God has given to those who obey him. And so what do they do? Pick up at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. Are you ready for this? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. You read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's earned PhD in suffering. Listen to this, what the apostle Paul endured for the sake of Christ. Beginning in verse 21, but everyone, anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. He could give a TED Talk on danger, right? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my marimna in the Greek, my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? More than all that I have suffered physically, there is the daily concern that I have for how the churches are doing, for how they are bearing up under persecution. That weighs more heavily on me than all of the beatings. There was a time when it was said that if a Christian had one book, it was the Bible. If they had two, it would be the Bible and the hymnal. If they could afford three, it would be a Bible, a hymnal, and Fox's Book of Martyrs. If they could afford four, just so you know, it would have been Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But who was in prison for preaching the gospel himself when he wrote it? But in Fox's Book of Martyrs, there are things that you read in there that I can't repeat in a mixed audience, such as ours. You read of Nero, that sadist, that maniacal madman who hated Christians so much that he would capture them, cover them with tar and pitch, impale them alive on stakes, and set them ablaze to light his garden parties. And so you would come to these garden parties to practice debauchery and engage in orgies, all the while the garden was lit by writhing, dying, screaming Christians. Or Bonhoeffer, who heard Christ bid him come and die, or Solzhenitsyn, who spent eight years of his life imprisoned in the Russian gulag for choosing the Messiah over Marx the Savior over socialism, Christianity over communism, which always ultimately leads to oppression and the dehumaning and the dehumanization of society everywhere it spreads, naming one exception. Go to Voice of the Martyrs online. You read stories like this that happened just a couple of years ago. Radical Islamic groups based in Somalia regularly attack Christians in Kenya who live near the border late in the evening of January 2nd, 2022. 
Al-Shabaab terrorists from Somalia broke into a house, pulled out a Kenyan father of four named Joseph, and questioned him about his religion. When Joseph boldly declared that he was a Christian, my wife read my sermon before I came this morning. She said, you can't describe this. So I'm just going to leave it as they ended his life. Then they threatened his wife, Grace, and they set their home on fire on September 26, 2023. <laughs> Today I was celebrating my birthday. Terrorists returned to the village and destroyed Grace's rebuilt home. They also killed her neighbor and burned five more homes. Grace and her children were away at the time, sleeping in a sewing workshop that Voice of the Martyrs had provided for her. This is what saved her life and the lives of her children, said a frontline worker who added that a local pastor's life has also been threatened and that the situation in the town is tense due to a lack of security. Beloved, let's inconvenience ourselves. I would invite you, inconvenience yourselves once a week and go to Voice of the Martyrs and hear what your brothers and sisters all across this globe are suffering for the name. When Christian pro-life advocates can be arrested in extreme military-style raids on their homes and face years in prison for singing and praying at abortion facilities. Jesus' words, they will hate you, ring true. When a Christian math teacher a year ago, last May, in the UK, congratulated a group of students in his math class for doing well on a project and said, well done, girls, and he accidentally misgendered one of the students. He apologizes, but he still loses his job. When a year ago, a California teacher, Jessica Tapia, loses her job for refusing, based on her Christian convictions, to comply with the state's policies on hiding a student's gender transition and pronoun preference when asked by that very student's parents. Beloved, we must wake up. We must wake up to the longer march de institutionen the long march of Marxism through the institutions with its Marxian, Freudian, socialist, Italian, uh, totalitarian trajectory. The church from every tribe, tongue, and nation will have to navigate this if things continue as they are. I'm not trying to be provocative for the sake of provocation, but Christ Presbyterian Church, we must, we must not seek out persecution in some self-righteous, self-congratulatory manner, but we must seek to live so faithfully and boldly that when the crucible comes, we will be worthy of it. And I think it's not far away. Because no matter how hard we try to give Jesus an image overhaul and make him tolerable to modern sensibilities, he will ever be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, 1 Peter 2, 8. And so we must have courage. And Jesus concludes and says, I'll give you comfort he tells his disciples, he tells us when persecution comes, there is a provision, and that provision is a person. Jesus calls him the parakletos, the comforter, the counselor. The person of the Holy Spirit could easily take a month of Sundays to preach, easily. We have time now only to experience his presence as we make our way to the table of grace. For it is here at these tables that the Holy Spirit meets us and lifts up our hearts from this earthly sanctuary to the very heavenly holy of holies as we feast upon this word in a picture that confirms the word preached. That word, above all earthly powers, 
No thanks to them abideth the Spirit, and the gifts are ours through him who with us us. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life. Also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So, beloved, are you willing to be a conduit of the love of God in Christ to your brothers and sisters and to the world around you? You ready to wash feet? You ready to count the cost of suffering for his name? The tag, the sign on the fragrant roses I gave my wife and daughter revealed that something so beautiful cost relatively little. But the tag on you, your baptism, and the sign before you in the bread and the wine show that the cost to buy you back from sin and death was priceless blood that ran down from a crown of thorns. This supper, beloved, is a table spread for us in the midst of our enemy, Psalm 23, verse 5. And make no mistake about it, this world hates you because you drink from a cup of love that hath neither brim nor bottom.